welcome to Tokyo Game Life, a Tokyo-based video game podcast focusing on Nintendo and gaming culture in Japan's capital. It's your slice of gaming life in Tokyo. I'm Mono, and we are really in the midst of the rainy season in Japan. Yeah, no one likes rain in summer, but there is a great payoff. The ajisai, or hydrangea, start to bloom, and there are countless places in Tokyo to see these amazing flowers in all their pink and purple glory. I went to a shrine festival with hundreds of these flowers, and then I bought some yokan, which is a traditional jelly snack. Good Japan living. But you're not here for flower talk. You're here for games. This is the last episode in June, meaning that this year is almost halfway over. So what better time to talk about the best games of 2022 so far? Josh from the excellent Still Loading podcast joins me to talk about our favorite games this year. And since we had about 10,000 or so new game announcements these past few days, he's also going to join me to break down what we need to look forward to for the rest of 2022. We have a lot of new game announcements, but that doesn't mean we can just leave old games in the dust. This episode, I'm featuring Dorama, which is a used goods shop that sells hundreds of retro games. It's located in a very fun part of Tokyo, a place a lot of tourists tend to miss. And in the game section, I'll share my thoughts on the newest Mario sports title, Mario Strikers Battle League, and Chronicle My Club's Path to Dominance. I've also been playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge, a new game with a very retro feel. Let's jump right into the best games of 2022 so far with Josh from the Still Loading Podcast. 2022 is blazing by, and there have been more than a few noteworthy titles already. Some, I would even say, are easy Game of the Year contenders. And there's a lot of old titles I've replayed or played for the first time this year that are just as good. To chat about the best new and old games of 2022 so far, I've brought on a special guest. So guest, please introduce yourself. Hello. Uh, yeah, so my name's Josh. I'm the host of the Still Loading Podcast. It's a video game podcast that focuses on video game history, video game culture, and pretty much everything else that surrounds it. I've done uh, episodes where I've interviewed people in the industry. I've interviewed wonderful people like Mono here, and I've also done weird ideas on the show like uh, dramatic readings of video game manuals and the Final Fantasy Fantasy Draft. So if stuff like that interests you, that's a brief uh, synopsis of my podcast. Thanks for joining me today. In regards to 2022 games, I saw that you recently completed Kirby and the Forgotten Land. What is your history with the Kirby franchise? So I've played Kirby's Adventure mm. on the NES, and I've also played Kirby Mass Attack actually yes. on the DS. Uh, I never beat it because you have to. I, that's the one where you get a ton of Kirby's. If I remember, like there's right. you get like you know like ten or twelve or twenty Kirby's at the at, and you kind of control them all at the same time. And you know the objective is to finish a level with a specific number of Kirby's. Well, to beat the game, you have to like get the perfect number of Kirby's in each level. And I just did not feel like I got to a point where I played through so many levels. Then it made me go back and have to perfect those levels to get you know, survive with all the Kirby's or the or the the recommended amount of Kirby's or something like that. And and once I found out that I needed to do that, I just kind of went forget this. I I don't I don't feel like doing this. But that game still I still have a soft spot for that game in my heart because I played that game on my honeymoon. Oh wow! Uh, after my yeah, after my wife and I got married, we were we went to. Cancun for our honeymoon and while we were just kind of like relaxing by the pool and like just kind of just enjoying the time off for a week I 
I brought it out and I played it there. And it was, it was, <laughs> I actually have a lot of fond memories of the game, even though it frustrated me that I never did get to beat it. But yeah, that, those are really the only Kirby games that I have any sort of experience with other than Kirby and the Forgotten Land. I believe I have Kirby Squeak Squad for the DS as well, but I, ha- but I have not tried that yet. So have you have you tried any of those games, Mass Attack, uh, Squeak Squad, or uh, Adventure? I love Adventure. I actually didn't play it until the 3DS version, which is actually mm. in 3D, but it makes the game a lot more playable because it gets rid of like the lag and the frame rate issues that the NES version mm-hmm. had. And the 3D actually works extremely well, uh, but I don't really have any experience with Mass Attack or Squeak Squad. I do have a fun uh, bit of info for both those games because in Europe, uh, Squeak Squad is called Mouse Attack, but then Mass Attack came out. So in Europe, there's Mouse Attack and Mass Attack, which I think would be very, very confusing for parents. Like Mouse as an M-O-U-S-E? Yes, because the enemy <laughs> is like a, a mouse. Oh, okay. <laughs> what a strange title for a game. Yeah, the Europe. Uh, I don't even want to get into like the Europe and Kirby title fiasco. What about the Forgotten Land really hooked you? What I loved about it was the the charm of all the different power ups, the attention to detail within the game. Uh, just what the uh, this is a really small bit of attention to detail on it, but I feel like it's something that any other person might have overlooked. When, as you know, the big uh, new feature, the big new mechanic in this game is mouthful mode, and you can right. uh, try to suck up large objects that Kirby can't quite all the way swallow, so that way he can use them. So it's usually like. Uh, like a traffic cone that lets you kind of slam into the ground and attack the ground uh, or do like, like almost like a, like a, like a spike attack with it. There's also like the ring that kind of acts as a air can as an air cannon. Mm. But when he, when when Kirby grabs a car, when he does mouthful mode on a car, when you're driving, you can see Kirby's feet dangling off the back, right over the taillights. And it's the goofiest thing I've ever seen, <laughs> just seeing these tiny two little feet just kind of right on the back. And it, I found it really amusing. Uh, it just The game is filled with so much charm. The All the secrets in the game are really fun. They're a good combination of like semi-hard to find, but still really not that hard to find it's a really good balance and i played on wild modes the the harder difficulty i did i did not do like the new game plus thing where they you keep all your power-ups and then you can go to like that other galaxy and fight everything over again but at a harder yes. difficulty or something like that i didn't do that but I, and i didn't actually rescue all the wildies i was close i i think i need like two waddledies still on the the final level and i just haven't oh, wow. gotten around to doing it well i beat the game at like around midnight on a stream and i'm just like i'm tired i don't i have to wake up tomorrow morning still i can't keep going i was exhausted so i will go back and actually get all the waddledies and maybe i'll even tinker with the new game plus ish type of mode. But one thing I didn't really touch, did, let me know if you tried any of these out. A lot of the mini games back in Waddle D town. Did you try any of those out? Yeah, I tried them out. You really just get coins for them, but they're still kind of fun to play and they are multiplayer. So if you have somebody else to play with, it's something for them to do as well. Okay. Okay. I, I maybe I'll have to try those out with my wife and she's not much of a gamer, but like you said, since it's a two player thing, it might be kind of fun. 
I I'll have to give that one a shot then. And who knows, maybe she'll be interested in trying it out. The only thing is I, I need to get an actual another I need to get another controller for my Switch because my so I, I was using the Joy-Cons to play because I do have one of those plug-in it's not a pro controller, but it's one of the like $25 wired controllers that you can plug in. And my the one I got, it's an official Nintendo one. It's got Mario on it and everything definitely wasn't the best quality of controller because i if i plug it in then it automatic then i guess a joystick or something is stuck because it just keeps moving my characters left no matter what i do it's really (laughs) aggravating so i can't play with it at all it's really frustrating but yeah so i i really enjoyed the kirby game a lot and especially considering it's the first one i really gave a super serious i guess it's the second one i gave a super serious try because even kirby's adventure i have not actually ever beaten it. i've played it a good number of times and actually i played in front of my daughter because it's so you know it's so colorful kirby's really adorable and also it's a like if she wants to take the controller I don't care if she does well in the game. She's only a little over a year old, so you know she her motor skills aren't. She's not going to be able to do anything. But I want her to have something that's not going to kill her right away, so she can at least hit a button and see how it reacts on the screen. So I always figure Kirby is a really good introductory game to young kids because it's you can kind of make the challenge whatever you want it to be. Um, And that's what I kind of like about Forgotten Land so much is that all the hidden waddledies there are some challenges that are really tough to do. Like some of the challenge waddledies, like where you have to beat a boss without getting hit. And there's a lot of them or beat a boss with this specific weapon or beat. There's, there's one on like this one bridge level that I was so mad at because you had to, it was two bosses at once and you couldn't take a hit. And I, I rage quit so many times on it. It was, it was so infuriating but yeah i i just i really enjoy the game for all those reasons it's incredibly well designed there's the power-ups are incredibly fun and allows a lot of variety in the and uh different ways that you can approach all the different puzzles and all the different combat scenarios it's just a really well designed game i really enjoyed it yeah i agree with you and actually the last time i talked about it i didn't do the super secret levels but now i have completed them and I think they are definitely worth doing if you want more Kirby. The levels are a bit more challenging than the base game, but the final boss is actually like really exciting and it has a good sort of story conclusion. So definitely if you have time, I recommend the, I forgot the name of it, but like the galaxy levels. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so I fully agree with you on Kirby and the Forgotten Land. And I was thinking about what is my game of the year so far? And It's a game I kind of didn't expect to be so high on my list this far into the year. And I honestly, I wonder if it will even be topped for the rest of the year. And that game is Pokemon Legends Arceus, which is uh, Game Freak's latest Pokemon game, even though they have another Pokemon game coming out later this year. So have you played Pokemon Legends Arceus yet? Believe it or not, I have, but I wouldn't really count it as playing it. it. I played it on stream for maybe maybe like 20 minutes i got to the first town uh right from the you know you they teach you how to capture pokemon and everything and that's honestly all i've really gotten to do so far so i wouldn't really count it as really playing it i i I can't even say i have an opinion formed on it so i'm curious to try because i've heard this game get nothing but rave reviews from everybody that i've spoken to like every every podcast that i listen to everyone seems to really like this game I think the biggest thing about this game is that it feels like a really fresh experience. Like some people have joked that it's Pokemon 2, 
Like they finally made a sequel to Pokemon. It's not just you know the same game, but just with uh, different Pokemon swapped out. And I wouldn't call it that, but it does feel like a very interesting evolution of a lot of the core concepts of Pokemon, but also kind of like a sidestep in a lot of ways. Uh, for example, it doesn't take everything from the main game and just simply make it better. It does some things, I would say definitely better, but some things are kind of different. Like it decides to focus on different ideas compared to the core Pokemon series. Of course, this game mostly focuses on uh, capturing Pokemon and more action-oriented elements and also kind of exploring and interacting with Pokemon and seeing them in their natural habitats, which is something that you really don't see in the actual games. It's something that Game Freak has been trying to do. They put Pokemon like in towns and like you can kind of interact with them. And of course, in Pokemon Snap, you can see them like the Pokemon living in their natural habitat, which is a great part of that game. And I think they've kind of duplicated that idea from Pokemon Snap into it like a real action adventure RPG. The Pokemon are where they're supposed to be. The ghost Pokemon come out at night and there are Pokemon like relaxing in like hot springs. One that I thought was really clever is that there's like a healing item. And in this area that has like a ton of these healing items, there's a Blissey, which is, of course, like the Pokemon associated with healing and in Pokemon centers. It's really cleverly thought out about where they put the Pokemon. It didn't feel random at all. It feels like every single spot had a lot of care and attention put into it. I am really looking forward to checking this out then because I just I've heard nothing but good things from so many people. I'm just it's so since it's an RPG ish type. I mean, it's a Pokemon game, so it's going to be a long experience. But I have I I was talking to you when you were on my show uh, or like when we were off mic then or whatever, but. Pokemon is a series that I grew up loving, but I never really played. I, I was, mm. I played red and blue, um, or green and red, if from Japan, right? Right. They had, red and green. Right. Red and green. That's what I thought. Red and green in Japan. And, uh, and then I didn't play another game again until Pokemon X and Y. <laughs> so I, I've had like no experience with any of the generations in between. And then six, since X and Y, I have not played another one. And then I also just played Arceus for the first little bit and did not get very far in that as well. So it's a series I really need to give a serious try to, but I feel like I need to go back for to the beginning. Like I, I need to start with, I already, I've played red and blue and green. Well, green didn't come to the US, but you know what I'm saying? I played that, I played first gen so many times. Like I, mm. I have a whole strategy down of how I play it. It's it's one of those things where I have a pattern of I play this way every single time. That's just what I enjoy doing. So I really need to buckle down and play gold and silver. I own gold and silver. I actually have it complete in box still, but I just have to set aside some time and actually play it. Yeah, and I think Arceus is actually a good jumping in point, even for lapsed fans, because it feels so new and different. The battle system is turn-based, yet it's way more fast-paced than normal. You can actually move during the battles. So there would be times where I would throw a Pokemon, go towards my next task, and then the battle just automatically ends after I've like one hit KO'd it. One great thing about Arceus is just that everything is so fast-paced and everything is so like action-oriented. You actually throw out the Pokeball when you summon your Pokemon. There are so many genius quality-of-life additions. Of course, in the old Pokemon games, when you start a battle, it's always with the first Pokemon in your party. So that Pokemon is typically your starter and they get way overpowered. But here you can pick like which Pokemon you want to start the battle with by throwing it out. That way your team is like more evenly leveled up and you can really adjust on the fly to different battle situations. Also, when it comes to like getting items 
or just doing puzzles, it all revolves around you kind of summoning your Pokemon. Your Pokemon can kind of do things independently from you. So you're really kind of like multitasking. Oh, I'm, I'm going to get the item from this tree and then I'm going to catch this Pokemon and then I'm going to battle this other Pokemon. And all this is done in a 30 second span. It's just so much more fast paced than normal. So I really recommend it for both Pokemon veterans if they want something fresh and also Pokemon newcomers. So Josh, what are some of the older games you've played for the first time in 2022? The games I've played so far that are a little bit older, most of them I've actually started before and never beaten. For example, I played through Medal of Honor Allied Assault for the first time Hmm. earlier this year. I actually did that because I was guesting on a different podcast, shout out to Retro Hangover and those the guys over there. It's a great podcast, especially if you like retro video games. We did an episode on Medal of Honor Allied Assault because growing up, uh, that was one of my favorite series. I loved the Medal of Honor games. And Allied Assault, honestly, still pretty fun. I'm not going to say it holds up today. It's definitely a dated FPS game, but it was still pretty fun. Um, so I've been playing that. And then I also have been playing, which is kind of... It kind of fits in with the news today as well. I'm playing Persona 3 for the first time. Mm. Now, Persona 3, I have started as well beforehand, but I didn't get very far. I would probably say I got about eight hours in, which in most games, that would be the whole game. But in an RPG, especially a JRPG, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so now I still haven't beaten it, but I'm about 50 hours in. Uh, I'm Mm. actually about, I haven't had a chance to touch it in like three or four months, but I, it's strange. Normally when that happens, does this happen to you? Like if you play a game, especially RPGs where it's, you know, RPGs are super involved, whether it's JRPG or a Western RPG, it's super involved and the storylines are usually pretty in depth. So you'll start one, you'll get a couple hours in, maybe you'll even get pretty far in and then you have to stop for one thing or another and then you forget everything that happened with the story. So then you feel like you have to start over again. But what's weird with Persona 3 for me is even though I haven't touched it, I want to say in about three months, I still, three or four months, I still remember what, like where I'm at in the story. I still remember a lot of the story beats, uh, like at least enough of the story beats where I feel comfortable diving back into it. I just, I have not had a chance. And actually the reason I stopped playing was because I got stuck on a boss in the Tartarus. For those who know Persona 3, you'll know what I'm talking about. I'm I'm a good number of levels up in the Tartarus, and I got stuck on a boss, and it's just, I don't know how to beat him. I've looked up strategies, and it's literally just attrition. You have to just beat the crap out of this boss. I'm not a high enough level to do it. So, and leveling takes a little bit of time. You know, it is a JRPG. So I'm going to have to set aside a night and just grind out levels. And that does not sound fun to me right now. I, I have such little time to play games. You know, like I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, you know, I'm a parent. So because I have such a little time to play games, I want to feel progress when I'm playing those games. And it's a very, it's a little hard to feel progress when you're spending two to three hours just grinding levels in an RPG. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, exactly. Especially like for Persona, because it has like the schedule system. So you kind of have to plan ahead like, okay, on this day, I'm going to do this. On this day, I'm going to grind. On this day, I'm going to talk to this person. Forward thinking is required to succeed in Persona. A hundred percent. And it's just, I don't know. I, I want to beat it because I really like the world that they're building. I like what they've done with mm. the characters. And it's just 
aggravating that I'm stuck on this boss. And you do have to reach the top of the Tartarus to beat the game. So at some point, I'm going right. to have to keep going. And it's just, I don't feel like it right now. I just don't want to grind for this one boss. And I just, I don't, I genuinely don't understand how to beat this thing. It, I'll have to, I mean, maybe I'll go back and I'll give it another shot and we'll see what happens. And maybe, you know, playing now, a couple, you know, a couple months removed from it, I'll be able to play with a little bit more clarity. Uh, it's, it, it's one of this, I've, I've noticed that sometimes before I used to play like Halo a lot, like online. And if I got, if I played too long, I would start getting, I was bad at it. I would get worse at it. And then I would take like a two month break and then I'd come back and all of a sudden I was good again. So I don't know if that's not maybe a perception thing, you know, like maybe just because I haven't played in so long and I win a couple matches and it feels like I'm doing well. And then when you play for a while, you, you expect to perform a certain way. So every time you don't, it feels like you've been not performing that way for a while. So who knows? Maybe, maybe persona's the same way where it's like, I'm so used to steamrolling things that when something actually comes up and gives me a challenge, then I'm like, Oh, I'm, I'm clearly not as good as I thought I was. And I, I, so, but maybe I'll come back to it, have a different strategy and uh, we'll go from there. Who knows? Do you have a favorite character in the persona three cast with persona three so far? My favorite character, Hmm. Akihiko. I really like Akihiko. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, just because he he could be that like jerk pretty boy type of character that all the girls will fawn over. And, you know, all the girls in the sh- in the movie, or, excuse me, all the girls in the game do fawn over him. But he's never mm. really like a player. He's not trying to be a bully to anyone. He's just very stoic. And I kind of like that. I kind of right. like that he's playing against his uh archetype almost like a like what you would expect someone like that to be like expect him to be the bully but he's not i also really like kotomaru i because i just because he it's it's a he's a dog like he's adorable like why wouldn't you like him um i did like junpei but now he's just kind of like where i'm at in the game he's kind of becoming a little whiny and i don't really feel like dealing with him uh so yeah those are those are off the top of my head those are the ones i i like in terms of the non- player characters i really like let's see let's see who i got here um i kind of like kazushi the the track star just because he also kind of plays against stereotypes like when he when you and him kind of become quote-unquote rivals it's not rivals in the western sense it's more rivals i feel like in the japanese sense you know it's mm. like you you encourage each other and push each other forward if, if i'm correct with that understanding of japanese culture at least right um and i kind of i like that i like that he's not just a jerk and he's just he he genuinely and you i like as you develop a relationship with him you learn more about why he wants to be the best track star out there and like what his motivations is and i really respect his motivation i would go into detail but i don't want to spoil it for anyone who has not played the game yet so yeah i would say those are some of my favorite characters Great. Yeah, I'm also a fan of Persona 3. And I think a lot of people did start with that game because it was on the PS2 and it was a bit more high profile than the Persona 1 and 2. But I think a lot of people agree that 4 and 5 are better. So so maybe in the future, you can try those as well. I have 4 and I, I plan on getting 5, even though it's been out for a couple of years. So I, maybe I'll give it a shot at some point. I've also been playing an old game this year, one that really stood out. It came to the Switch this year, at least. But it's Card Fighters Clash SNK versus Capcom, which originally came out on the Neo Geo Pocket Color. So a lot of people probably haven't played this game unless they played it through an emulator. 
It's a very classic trading card battle game. A lot of these came out in the late 90s and early 2000s. Of course, Pokemon TCG and Yu-Gi-Oh! But while those are kind of video game adaptations of actual card games, this is a card game made for a video game. And it often feels like that. There are SNK characters and Capcom characters in your deck, and then you use them to do card battles. And I don't want to get into like the detail on how to play the game. I did do that quite a bit in a past episode. But the game is fun because it's so lighthearted and it really feels like you've gone back to really the late 90s or early 2000s in Japan. Because a lot of the settings are in Tokyo or Osaka. And of course, these are very stylized, very chibi-fied versions of these cities. But it takes you to this idea that, oh, in this world, the only thing that matters is a card game. Everyone just talks about the card game. Everyone's job revolves around the card game. And it's just like a such a fun, lighthearted setting. Uh, have you ever played uh, Card Fighters Clash? I have not, and I but I do remember you talking about it in one of your previous episodes. I uh, I'm not a big fan of video games that are just card games. I I just can't. I've tried to get into them. Uh, have you like Have you ever played Slay the Spire? I know that's a popular one. Yes, yes. It it's so the first one that I ever really played was um, Chain of Memories, Kingdom Hearts Chain of Memories. Is that a, like in your since you've played a few of these card game card based video games, are, is that an okay one? Is that good at all? I played a little bit. I would say that one's pretty different. I would say SNK versus Capcom Card Fighters Clash is more akin to something like Pokemon card game. It's very streamlined though, so this one is much more straightforward. But there's still like a bit of strategy and complexity to it, which makes it a lot of fun. It's not just picking. You know, I'm just going to use the same cards every time. You have to kind of adapt to the situation. And the card art is like so beautiful. Iconic pixel sprite art, in my opinion. The characters are like bursting out of the cards and they're very like chibi-fied. They've got huge heads and they look very silly and very dynamic. I would still recommend it. It is very cheap on Switch. So I don't want people to forget about this classic game because if you buy it, uh, SNK did say they are thinking about translating the second Card Fighters Clash that never came out in America. So... If people want that, please buy the first game. I'll, maybe I'll give it a shot. I just, I've every time I've tried a card game, it just, it doesn't really appeal to me. There's only one time a card game in a video game I ever really enjoyed, and that's Triple Triad from Final Fantasy VIII. I'll leave you with this on Card Fighters Clash. You have to fight a zombie in a card battle. So think about that. <laughs> a zombie in a card. All right. I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. All right, great. So... Those are some of the games that stood out for us in 2022 so far. So, Josh, you're actually going to stay with me as we get into the news. All right, time for some news. Josh, I've got breaking news for you. I'm excited. There is no Nintendo Direct. That's the, uh, the news that I wanted to tell you. You got my hopes up. You were originally supposed to come on here to talk about the Nintendo Direct. That has yet to happen, but there are still plenty of other games to talk about. So how about we look at the Summer Games Fest, which was hosted by Jeff Keighley. So this is the replacement for this year's E3. So uh, I watched the entire thing, and there were some games that stood out for me. But Josh, what from the Summer Games Fest really caught your interest? There was a couple games that caught my interest. Uh, the first one that really stuck out to me, and it's 
Well, so I had a guest on the show named Stefan Reese. He is known as the Art of Nintendo Power on Twitter. He mm. works as a producer over at 2K Games, and they had a game that just came out called The Quarry. It looks super interesting. It's a narrative-based, I don't think it's first person, but it's it's a narrative-based adventure game. And it, it basically, you can choose different dialogue paths and based off the decisions that you make in those dialogue paths determine the fates of the different characters what i found super interesting about this there's been other games like this i actually played a game called erica which is live action this is uh the quarry is is 3d animated you know it's a video game it's still with game graphics but like uh Erica was live action. There's another game that I'm interested in called Telling Lies that looks interesting. And it's just it it seems like a similar gameplay mechanic. It's you have a couple options and you have to choose what based on the options that you choose determines how the story progresses. And so you it encourages you to replay it even though the storyline uh, is relatively the same. You can see all the different permutations and how it it changes. What was interesting to me about the quarry is that while it has that gameplay style and it's you know something that's already existed, there is a, an interesting new mode. It, it's the first game I've ever seen, and maybe another game has developed has done this before, but where they allow you to just sit back and watch the game, and you can determine what type of outcome you want beforehand. And at first, I was just kind of like, okay, that's a little lame, you know, like what's the point of the game if you just allow players to watch it? But what's interesting. What I found super interesting was that there is a customization mode where you can go into each of the characters of the game and pick their attributes, like what types of you know personality traits they have. And depending on the personality traits they have will determine how the quote-unquote autoplay, the auto-movie version of the game, plays out. So you can either choose to watch the game and have it be a dictate, like, and dictate how it... Um, like, do you want all the characters to live? Do you want all the characters to die, etc.? Or you can not select that, and then you can go through each of the characters and pick and change their traits. And then they will just kind of go through, and based off the types of traits that you choose, it will influence how the movie, quote-unquote, the game movie, per- plays out, which I thought was really interesting. It's It's kind of a game. It's kind of like an interesting hybrid between a movie... Like I feel like that's the closest thing to a hybrid of a movie and a game that I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, like, you know, Netflix did that thing with like Bandersnatch, the Black Mirror Bandersnatch where you right. it's kind of a choose your own adventure thing. And while that, that that's game-esque, that's kind of similar to what, you know, the games like Erica that I mentioned before where it's just dialogue trees and that based off your dialogue tree options determines the outcome of the story and the outcome and the different events that occur within the story. I've never seen it where you can choose your character. It's almost like you're a director and you're telling your actors to be like, all right, you're going to, this is your motivation this time. This is your, you know, triggers. Like these are things that trigger your character. This is like something they're sensitive to. This is something they're strong with. And it seems like you can just change that willy nilly. I don't know how much freedom you have with changing it. And then it completely changes the movie depending on what you change the characters around. It, It really feels like you're being an interactive director with something and i've never seen something like that before in a game so i was very intrigued by this game um it is a horror game so i don't know if i'm going to play it because i i'm i'm a wimp i don't i'm a scaredy (laughs) cat i don't like being scared 
but I'm very intrigued by it. Uh, not only because friend of the show, Stefan Reese, uh, produced the game, but that genuinely I'm impressed with the technology that was put into it. So that was the first thing that stuck out to me. Other ones that I was really excited about, there's a game called Stormgate, and it's from the makers. Mm. It's it's a lot of the developers from StarCraft II and WarCraft Three, and I'm a huge RTS fan, specifically StarCraft and StarCraft II. And it even opens, like, one of the sound effects is a Protoss sound effect from StarCraft II, which I thought was kind of cool. I noticed it. I'm like, that's a that's a Protoss sound effect. And it's supposedly going to be an RTS, but you wouldn't tell by the trailer because there was no gameplay in the trailer. It was just a story trailer. Mm. Um, there was also announced a game called Witchfire, which looked kind of Bioshock-ish, where you had, it's like an FPS, but you have powers as well. So it looked very much like Bioshock, which intrigued me. They announced Flashback 2, a sequel to the 90s game Flashback, uh, which I've never played, but I've heard some good things about. Um, And the last one I really want to, I really want to highlight is a game called American Arcade. Actually, sorry, there's two more. But I feel like one we both will really enjoy talking about. But the mm. the one before that is American Arcadia, and American Arcadia it's developed by a, a studio called Out of Out of the Blue. I think they did a game called uh, that came out in late 2020 called Call of the Sea, and Call of the Sea was like a first person uh adventure game it was there was puzzles that you had to solve and you played this woman named Nora who is trying to find her husband who disappeared on an island. And it's got this really good mystery uh, aspect to it. It's a, it's like semi-sci-fi, semi-adventure. It's really good. And I really like that game. And I, I, I found it because I had um, Sissy Jones, the voice. Oh, she's a voice actress. She was on my podcast. She's probably best known for her role as Delilah in the game Firewatch. She's also in the Disney Channel cartoon, The Owl House, which is a cartoon worth checking out, in my opinion. It's really good. Uh, so I was watching, I was looking at all the summer games fast trailers and this comes up I'm like oh this seems interesting the premise of it is is you play as a guy trying to escape from this city and it's a city that you live in that's monitored 24 7 and it's broadcasted on television to everyone so if your ratings go down they kill you like if they they kill hmm. the person so you have to so it's about this person escaping from this awful awful melancholic i'm trying to think of dystopia i couldn't think of the word dystopia i was like what's the opposite of utopia <laughs> it's dystopia um this dystopian city uh and I, the reason it even stuck out to me like i was intrigued by it but then i'm listening and i'm like i think that's sissy jones and then i go to twitter and it turns out it was sissy jones she's doing a voice in this game as well and i'm like Oh man! Well, now I have to get it. A friend, of, a friend of the show, and a friend of the show is doing a character in it, and it also has a really interesting premise. So I'm very curious as to what this game's going to be. It looks like it's kind of isometric, so I'm curious to what it's going to be. But the final thing that I wanted to uh, bring up was TMNT Shredder's Revenge, Teenage Mutant Ninja right. Turtles Shredder's Revenge. I actually did buy a physical copy of this game from Limited Run Games, the one with the with the Pizza Hut coupons in it. And I'm very excited to get my own personal pan pizza again, just like back in the day. Did Were you interested in this one? I remember we were talking a little bit about this off mic. Yes, actually, I'm going to feature it on this episode so people can hear my oh, thoughts perfect. on TMNT very, very soon in maybe 30 minutes or so. <laughs> No, I won't. I won't set, talk anymore on it. It just it seems interesting to me. So I'm I'm excited to hear the episode when it's done and hear what you have to say about it. 
For me, for Summer's Games Fest, one of the announcements that stood out was Guile is going to be in Street Fighter VI. So they announced Street Fighter VI a while ago, but they showed it again recently. And I think a lot of people are really excited about this game, especially a lot of the returning characters have very new looks to them and new outfits and new ways to play them. Actually, the roster for this game did get leaked, or at least most of it did. So we have seen like a lot of the game already. But the leaks just got me more excited for the game to see who's coming into it and what they look like. So are you excited for Street Fighter 6 at all? For my friends, yes. For a personal level, no. And that's only because I'm bad at fighting games. I love <laughs> how fighting games look. I love the culture around them, even though I know the fan even though I know competitively it can be a little bit toxic. I really just love the insane stories that get tied with it and the world building is it's so over the top, but in a good way. I, I really enjoy everything about fighting games and around fighting games. I enjoy everything but playing them because I hate being bad at games and I'm just <laughs> not good at them. But I would say the only one I've ever gotten okay at. I don't actually I don't think I've ever been good. Oh, I I remember being okay at Tekken as a kid, Tekken one or two. And that was it. So I've never really given Street Fighter a serious try. It's very, uh, it's one of those skill sets that just feels a little bit over my head. But I'm always willing to try it out, especially as the like fighting games get newer and they make it a little bit more accessible to new players. Hmm. So I'm I'm curious to see where this goes because I'm all I'm genuinely always excited for a new entry into a fighting game franchise, especially one as iconic as Street Fighter even if I have little to no intention of playing it, because once again, I am bad. <laughs> I think Capcom is definitely making a push for Street Fighter VI to be more casual friendly. Like they've implemented like this world tour mode, which is kind of like an open world-ish type of exploration mode. And they also have something called modern controls, where the input methods are a bit more simple. Street Fighter V went really in the direction of like esports, which turned a lot of people off. So I think they are trying to find a better middle ground for street fighter six i hope so because um i i do really like i i like what you know street fighter represents and everything and i love the art i love the music i love uh, i even love how like i mean the 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 iconic thing i forgot what was it, it was from street fighter three alpha or whatever the the famous mm -hmm. daigo versus justin wong match is that the one i'm thinking of Yes. the game that it's from like i don't i have no vested interest in the esports community around the around these games and even when i every time i watch that it's just the most exciting thing in the world to me even though i know nothing about the about how the game plays and the mechanics of it other than just you hit you know one button to punch and another to kick i mean i know that's a simplified version of it but it's still like i that it's interesting it's an interesting thing around it so i'm very excited to see what comes out of the community with this game as well. After a summer games fest, Xbox also had a showcase. What from the Xbox showcase really stood out for you, Josh? I'll be honest, not a whole lot. I believe now I didn't see, I, I found an article cause I didn't get to watch it at the time. I didn't get to watch it live cause I was at work or I was, you know, my kid was still awake. So I couldn't really, I was busy with them. Um, so I didn't get to watch it live. Is this where they announced the Persona stuff? Was that at the Xbox yes. showcase? Yes. X okay. uh, Persona 3 and 4 are coming to, or actually 5 as well, are coming to Game Pass. Okay. Um, so that would, as, as sad as it is, that's all that really intrigued me 
with hmm. the Xbox Game Pass or Xbox Game Pass Xbox Showcase. There's a couple games that seemed a little interesting. Uh, Valheim, I've played on the PC and I, I liked I didn't play much of it, but I liked it. It's almost like Norse mythology Minecraft where minus the pixel graphics, you know, have you ever played Valheim or heard of it? No, but I know it's quite popular on PC. Yeah, it's kind of like Norse mythology Minecraft is the best way I can describe it, where you're put into a world, you're given crafting materials, you build houses and you fight monsters to collect different re- fight monsters and uh, get, um, you know, cra- cut down trees and all this other stuff to collect resources. So that way you can continue to build better houses and kind of, you know, in- uh, increase the quality of the of the items in your possession that kind of stuff so it it's a really cool game what i played of it i've only played a little bit of it so i'm happy it's coming to xbox but i i don't have a, a huge vested interest in it the persona 3 is honestly the most exciting thing for me persona 3 <laughs> and 4 just because it's a game series that was only on the ps2 and there was a couple ports to, you know what there's persona 4 for golden on the vita and then there was right. the psp version and there was like or there's psp version of three and there's like persona 3 fes which was a re-release of three on the ps2 and that, that i mean that kind of uh i'm happy to see that um other than that there wasn't a whole lot there was a game called pentiment that seemed really interesting only for its art style it's like a hmm. historical mystery game and it's done in the art style of like those old like illustrations that you would see in books i can't really i'm bad at describing it but if you get a chance look at the uh trailer for it the art style is really interesting and i'm very curious about it um just kind of looking through some stuff real quick i don't care about fall guys and that master chief (laughs) is coming to fall guys uh stalker 2 i've never played the original one but the fact i believe the developer is ukrainian and it's kind of cool right. to see that they're still somehow putting a game together like the like i think one of the things that was surprising the update i didn't get to watch the update but the fact that they were all like when they were giving their updates they were in uniform and holding weapons because they're still fighting the war against russia and it's just it was just kind of nuts to to see that but yeah i'm trying to think pentiment sound really interesting there's another game i have i put a star on because i did watch the trailer um grounded because it looked like basically like a an adventure game that's a survival adventure game that it's basically honey i shrunk the kids you know you're you're shrunk to the size of an ant and you have to survive on the ground with all the bugs and everything that seemed kind of interesting but other than that there wasn't a whole lot that i was that interested in what about you though in terms of Japanese games, their kind of biggest announcement was actually old games like Persona 3 and 4 and 5 coming to Game Pass. I was kind of hoping that Xbox would be a bit more aggressive in getting more Japanese games on the hardware. Um, one game that they did show from Team Ninja is, I believe it's called Rolong, uh, which is kind of like, it looks like a Chinese style version of Neo, which is a game they worked on earlier. They didn't really show a whole lot of the gameplay. It's just a cinematic trailer. But I kind of do wonder, is this kind of like a mythological Chinese version of Neo, a game I really enjoyed? Which And Neo, of course, is a kind of a Souls game. So this is kind of maybe a Chinese-themed Souls game, which does look pretty good. They definitely have a lot of games coming out. And Game Pass, like if you want to play games, Game Pass has plenty of games there. I'm mostly interested in sort of like the Japanese games that they showed off. 
But yeah, most of them were technically old games. Yeah, I I don't know. I feel like Xbox, as much as I like what they've been doing, especially for accessibility, just none of their games are really that exciting to me as much Mm. as like Sony's are. And I, it bums me out because I like that they are much more open to preserving the past and they also build cool controllers for, for people who have physical disabilities. And I find that awesome, but there's just not a whole lot that I, that I find all that interesting though. Microsoft flight simulator is celebrating its 40th anniversary, which is cool. Never played it, but you know, it's a popular series. I think it's a little scary that games are celebrating their 40th anniversary. Have games really been around that long? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I think what freaks me out. So if it's 40 now, that means what? That would be 1982 would have been 40 years ago, which I did not know that Microsoft even made anything like that. And I didn't even think Windows was a thing in 1982. I thought it was just getting started. I didn't think there was Mm. any commercial. To be fair, I have no idea what the timeline for the commercial release of Windows is. But uh, if it's celebrating its 40th anniversary, that's wild to think about. So after the Xbox game showcase, there was a lot of other smaller showcases. One that really stood out for me was the Wholesome Games Direct. Now, I believe you didn't get a chance to check this out, right? Nah, unfortunately, I was not able to watch anything about this, but I would love to hear what you, what you, some of the things that you found interesting in it. The Wholesome Games Direct is great because it's really your first introduction to a lot of games that you've definitely never heard of from developers you've also never heard of. Many of them are very small, maybe even one-man teams. If you don't know what the Wholesome Games Direct is, imagine kind of like an alternate universe where instead of like uh, shooters and like realistic graphics became like AAA games, Imagine if like the most important games ever were Animal Crossing, Hamtaro, Wind Waker, and Harvest Moon. Those are like the, that's the Mount Rushmore of the Wholesome Games Direct. I love it. Pretty much all the games are at least a little bit inspired by these. I believe Nintendo Life wrote an article that over 50 of these games in the presentation are coming to Switch. So if you're a Switch gamer, wow. it's definitely something to check out. A few games I want to mention. One is uh, Mika and the Witch's Mountain which kind of looks like a mix of Kiki's Delivery Service and a short hike. This game is set on a tranquil island, like a short hike, and you deliver packages. Another one was Free Ride, which is described as a game that's secretly a personality test. You have psychic powers, hmm. and the game has a physics system. So there's a lot of like what? throwing things around and things that are bouncing off. Interesting. And the game secretly tracks your decisions and then tells you what your personality is. So, for example, wow. if you maybe if you knock over something, oh, it's like, oh, you are very reckless. Or maybe if you're nice to somebody, oh, actually, you're a very kind and generous person. Supposedly, it's a bit more ambiguous. Like, it doesn't tell you what is your decision. It's mostly determined by how you play the game. So I think it I looks like very that. fun and goofy. That seems cool. I like that. I like that idea of that kind of reminds me of you ever heard of Ultima 4 or, you know, the Ultima yes. series. Right. Um Ultima 4, I've never played one, but I remember learning, I've listened to a podcast on it and I'm very, I'm fascinated enough to like, even though it's probably difficult and a little old, the it's, it's called, I think it's Ultima 4, the avatar or something like that. What's interesting about it, it's not necessarily about combat. It's about the decision making and it's more about like the, the premise of it is you trying to reach enlightenment about it's about how you treat people in the world and that determines your attributes versus your combat skills so it, like it kind of reminds me a little bit of that but obviously 
uh, in a much more modern context and slightly different. And there's actually a huge number of frog games. Uh, so, and honestly, all of them look pretty good. There's Shim, where you are a frog that hops shadows. Like, for example, you're in a person's shadow and you have to hop into the next shadow, which may be from like a trash can or something. So it's kind of like Shim? a puzzle game. Yes, Shim. I'm not sure why it's called that. It's actually I probably like, not a, a good name for a game, but. I feel like Shim is the name that a redneck would give their frog. It's my frog, <laughs> Shim. Maybe. There's also Ollie Frog Toad Skater where you are a skateboarding frog and or toad. And there's, it looks like frog gun, but it's pronounced frog gun. You aren't a frog, but your gun is a frog. And it uses okay. its tongue to latch onto things, kind of like a hook shot from Zelda. And the art style is a very striking PS1 inspired art style. So I think we are getting slowly more towards like PS1 and N64 styled indie games after the massive amount of pixel games. That makes me very excited to hear. Yeah, so these are just some of the games from the Wholesome Games Direct. I would highly recommend to any Switch game fan, if you have an hour or so, definitely watch the Wholesome Games Direct because the trailers are only about 30 seconds, so it's a lot of it goes by pretty quickly. And there are many fun and interesting games that you've never heard of that you'll encounter here. Okay, some other game news. Final Fantasy VII had a special event, so they announced a few important games. The first one is Crisis Core Reunion, which is a remaster of the PSP game. So, Josh, do you have any experience with uh, Crisis Core? I do. I never beat it, but I played a ton of it on my PSP. And I actually remember my friends played a lot of it as well. I got far and I remember getting stuck on something, not even like a boss. Like I just, I genuinely couldn't figure out where to go. And even looking up online, I think something was wrong with my save file or the game because it just wouldn't load the next like cutscene or something like that. So I got stuck of surprisingly of no fault of my own on this one, or I mean, maybe I just was misinterpreting it, but I really, the game was really cool. It, it was very much ahead of its time in terms of like what action RPGs would become with the final mm. fantasy series. At least in my opinion, it was um, the visually, it was really beautiful. Like it looked really good for a handheld game. And also uh, one thing my friend did that was kind of cool. Cause the cutscenes were amazing in it. I know those are pre-rendered, but what my friend would do is he would save right before every cutscene and create a new save file for each one so he could watch <laughs> the cutscenes whenever he wanted to. Like that's how much he liked the cutscenes. So I really enjoy this game. I, I I need to get back and around and playing it. So I'm happy to hear they're remaking it because it's kind of hard to find a reason to like charge up my PSP and play it again. You know what I mean? I've actually never played it, but I'm pretty interested in trying it out. And they also announced Final Fantasy VII Rebirth, which is the sequel to Final Fantasy VII Remake, uh, which is another game I haven't actually played in full. I tried the demo, and it is on my PS5. Like, I have the game from PS Plus, but it's one of those games that I've just downloaded and just haven't touched yet. Definitely worth playing, in my opinion. I really enjoyed uh, Remake a lot, a lot more than I was expecting to. I remember being like, okay, am I going to get this? But once I saw people playing it and I saw what they did with it, I was very, very impressed. I I don't want to spoil anything for you with the story of it, but I'm not entirely sold on what Nomura is doing with the story. I, I think, in my opinion, he's he does stray he does stray from it a bit and i don't want to spoil how much or how little or in what ways uh j but just know that go just know going into he does stray from the story and i genuinely don't know if it's good or bad 
Because with Nomura, it could be either way. <laughs> yes. So the first one was Remake, and the second one is Rebirth. And they did announce that this is going to be a trilogy. So there will be a third game as well. So Josh, do you have any predictions for what the third game will be called? Oh, well, it's got to start with an R, clearly. So you have yes. Remake, Rebirth, and as long as it's not like Relife or something like that. <laughs> um, reinvest. <laughs> reinvest, yeah. I'm hoping for re, uh, Revengeance. That would be a good name for a game. <laughs> there we go. And uh, one last bit of news. Uh, Dragon's Dogma 2 was announced via t-shirt. Uh, they didn't show anything of the game except that they are going to make it. Look forward to that. Some other bit of news. Not a new game announcement, but Pokemon Snap is coming to Nintendo Switch Online on June 24th. And so this is the last N64 game that Nintendo has actually said that is coming to the Nintendo Switch Online service. So if they do add more to the service, it'll be a game that they haven't showed off yet. Uh, so I'm kind of curious about what else they could add to the N64 service. So Josh, are you a big Pokemon Snap N64 fan? Yes, I am. As much as I said, I did not play any of the mainline Pokemon games since uh, Gen 1 to X and Y and then again at Arceus. Uh, I loved Pokemon Snap as a kid. I've replayed it a number of times. I actually, I never got to do this as a kid, and I don't, um, for those who live outside of the U.S., I, I don't know, maybe they maybe they did this in Blockbusters outside of the North America too, but I'm only speaking to the North American experience at least. At Blockbuster, you could bring in your save data, like on your, your Rumble Pack or your save card or whatever mm. with the 64, and bring it to a kiosk they had there and take get your pictures printed out on stickers right. and you could uh you know have your your photos that you took in game everywhere you went and i love that idea and i remember i was at a game a local game store near me and i i regret not buying this there i found a copy of pokemon snap i had already i already owned pokemon snap so i didn't buy it but I really should have because it wasn't expensive and now the price has gone way up. But it had it was covered on the back with stickers that whoever owned, whatever kid owned it before took a bunch of those stickers or you know, took a bunch of their photos, printed them out, and stuck them all over their cart. And I kinda like, you know, most collectors wouldn't go for that because it's not the pristine condition version of the game. But I think that's amazing. That that shows so much history. You get to see a little bit of the history of the previous owner and like the memories that this kid had playing this game. And I'm, I kind of regret not picking it up because I think that would have been really cool to have in my collection. But I digress. Yes, I loved Pokemon Snap as a kid. I loved all the secrets and how like you could... You know, if you could figure stuff out, like the second level, when you if you knock the Charmeleon at the end of it into the volcano pit and it turns into a Charizard, that blew my mind as a kid. And right. there's, you know, there's so much stuff like that built into the game. I, I love that. I love Pokemon Snap. Japan also had the sticker functionality, but you had to bring it to Lawson, which is a Japanese convenience store. So it's kind of oh, funny okay. to see that both countries had like the same idea, but executed in very different ways. Speaking of Japan, let's get into some Japanese game sales. Demon Slayer was number one at 90,000 physical units in Japan. So this is the Switch version. And compared to the PS4 version from last year, it sold pretty much the same. So it really makes you wonder if they came out last year. I think it would definitely dominate the charts over the PS4 version. Also, Mario Strikers Battle League debuted at 32K, which is lower than most Mario sports titles, but in line with the Wii release. 
Mario Strikers Battle League is not that big in Japan, so we'll see how the European sales fare in terms of this game's success. And Switch is at 58,000 units this week, which is a bit under 60,000, which is what it's been selling these past few weeks. Both PS5 and Xbox are down about half from last week due to stock issues. And the big news is that Nintendo Switch has passed 25 million units in Japan. So Josh, I want to give you a little quiz about Nintendo hardware performance in Japan. Let's see how you fare. Oh, I'm ready to fail. Let's do this. Okay. Nintendo Switch is 25 million in Japan, so you can use that as your point of reference. So what do you think the Wii U sold in Japan? It was 13 million worldwide. So in Japan, how much did Wii U sell? Thank you for giving me that number. I was actually guesstimating. <laughs> I was I was tempted to look up how much Wii U had sold worldwide. Not I didn't want, I didn't want to cheat. I didn't want to cheat. I just wanted to see what the console sold worldwide. So I'm going to estimate then if the Wii, if the Switch is selling 20, is, has currently sold 25 million and the Switch worldwide is like over 100 million, I'm going to guess that the Wii U sold, mm, I'm going to say about 4 million. You're close. 3.3 million. Oh, it was, it was a little bit lower than a quarter then. Okay. This is a trend you'll definitely figure out. Uh, the 3DS, it sold 80 million worldwide. So how much did it sell in Japan? Well, for keeping with the quarter mentality, it would be 20 million. But I'm going to guess a little bit higher and guess 22. 24.5 million. Oh, I was even going to guess 25 and I cut it off. Dang it. Japan is definitely responding more to Nintendo handhelds than their home consoles. So a few months ago, Nintendo Switch did pass the 3DS uh, their lifetime sales. Uh, so the Wii, it sold about 100 million worldwide. How much did it sell in Japan? Uh, so if you're saying that their handheld sells better, but the Wii was so popular, I don't know. I want to say like a good ballpark is like, you know, the quarter of the of the worldwide sales, but I feel like it it's not, it's very seldom going to be exactly a quarter. So if it sold 100 million, I'm going to be a little risky and say 30 million. 12 million. 12 million in oh Japan for the God. Wii. It was not even, it was half of a quarter. So it was an eighth of a million. Or sorry, an eighth, an, sorry, an eighth, uh, an eighth of the hundred million. I'm sorry, not eighth of a yes, million. Right. Wow. Uh, this one, the DS, how much did it, it sold? About 150 million worldwide. So how many did it sell in Japan? I'm going to guess 45 mil. 32 million, 32 oh, million, man. So, which, is, which, which is Nintendo's uh, highest selling piece of hardware in Japan. It was a huge success, but it also had some competition with the PSP, uh, which mm -hmm. actually a lot of people think the PSP, of course, oh, the DS crushed it, uh, which I, I guess it kind of did. The DS sold 150 and the PSP sold 80 million. So compared to that, it's like twice, but 80 million is nothing to scoff at. No, not at all. Yeah, it was a big platform in Japan. Uh, so will Nintendo Switch top the DS's 32 million? That's pretty hard to say, and I think quite unlikely, uh, especially since the DS was quite cheap and it didn't have any competition with, of course, mobile gaming. But Nintendo Switch is still trucking along. So that wraps up the news segment. So Josh, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you? 
You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Still Loading Pod on all of them. You can also find me on wherever you find uh, your wherever find podcasts are given away for free. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. You can also find an audio version of the show on YouTube. Uh, even though, I mean, it just shows a picture of the thumbnail. I don't do a video segment, so yeah, you can pretty much find it on all those locations. Let's jump right into the feature on used goods shop Dorama. Once again, thanks to Josh from the Still Loading Podcast. Be sure to check his socials out. They're in the podcast description. Old games. They're all over Japan, all over Tokyo. If you are anywhere in the capital, you could probably walk to box copies of Super Famicom games in maybe 10 to 15 minutes from pretty much anywhere in the city. I'm always legit surprised when I arrive at a station and then realize, oh, there's no gale or book off within 200 meters. The opposite of this is arriving in the middle of nowhere or a place where you would never assume has retro games and then finding a treasure trove. This episode's feature is all about Dorama, a somewhat under-the-radar used media shop chain. Used media shop chain is kind of a clunky phrase. In Japan, they're often referred to as recycle shops. Basically, they resell old stuff. Some specialize in specific items, like Book Off is focused on media, books, movies, games, CDs, and so on. Super Potato only does games, while Hard Off has everything under the sun. Do you want a new chair or baby clothes or a DJ set? Hard Off has it. By the way, I did features on Super Potato and Hard Off in earlier episodes, so check those out if you haven't. Just keep these episodes on loop 24-7. Now, while Book Off, Hard Off, and Super Potato are pretty well known among fans of Japanese retro games, Dorama isn't. For one, it's a much more localized chain. You aren't finding a Dorama shop in Osaka or Fukuoka. These stores are only in Tokyo and Kanagawa, which neighbors Tokyo. There are eight total shops in Tokyo, which is more than Super Potato, but obviously without the sheer quantity and fame of that store. Another interesting element is that most of the stores are located quite close to each other and are more on the outskirts of Tokyo. So you aren't going to stumble across Dorama in Shibuya or Akihabara. However, they are located in very fun and interesting locations in Tokyo and have a few unique elements that stand out, so I wanted to feature it on the podcast despite not being that famous. The first Dorama opened up in 1979 in Setagaya, which neighbors Shinjuku and Shibuya. It was a recycle shop solely for books. As the years went on, they slowly expanded their business. Dorama got into video rentals, then selling home media equipment, then finally shifting to general used goods in 2000. Worth noting that they have a very distinctive Saturn logo that's easy to spot from far away. Dorama even operates some arcades, which I'll talk about in a bit. According to their site, they only got into selling games starting in 2018, so they are a very new entrant in the retro game scene. Retro gaming has certainly seen an uptick worldwide, with a lot of companies trying to get a piece of that pie. Even in Japan, which has a glut of retro titles, I do feel that prices are increasing due to a higher demand. Just a few years ago, you could buy boxed copies of the Game Boy Pokemon titles for maybe 1,000 to 1,500 yen. Now I've seen them at 3,000 yen plus. Some even go up to 6,000 yen. You can still buy loose cards for 300 yen at some places, but still, you gotta have the box. I recently bought Pokemon Card Game GB2, but the box copies are like $200, so I settled for the cart. 
But man, I want the box. A lot of Dorama's stores are clustered together in the same area of Tokyo. Half of their Tokyo stores are located in Shimokitazawa, which is a part of Setagaya where Dorama first began. This area isn't likely on the top of many tourist lists when they come to visit Tokyo, but it's one of these places that locals go to spend an afternoon. It's Friday night, and now you're just starting to think about the weekend. Everything is sold out, or you have no real idea about where to go or what to do. Strolling around Shimokitazawa is the perfect idea to have in your back pocket when you did zero planning beforehand. I suppose calling it trendy is a cliche, but it is a frequent haunt for Japanese fashion subcultures. I'm not sure if hipster is still a thing or if it's evolved and spun off into different subgroups, but it does feel like a very hipster type of place. Yes, there are hipsters in Japan. You could argue that they even started here. Shimokitazawa is filled with dozens of one-of-a-kind cafes and shops. You won't be bumping into too many international chains here. There's also quite a high number of Western food joints. I discovered multiple pizza and burger places by accident. When it comes to shopping, though, there is a very clear theme. Vintage, retro, old, whatever you want to call it. You're not finding your big brands here, not even a Uniqlo. Clothing shops here are mostly centered around used clothing, especially from the West. For Japanese people, Shimokitazawa really does have rare, one-of-a-kind clothing. But if you're from the West, you might be shocked to see what they sell. A lot of it is old, oversized t-shirts or gaudy button-ups. There's also a lot of old sports jerseys. Some of the clothing can be very random, like the staff shirt for some steakhouse in Kansas. How did they even get that? Wearing a bunch of old stuff from America isn't really my jam, but a lot of the Japanese youth do like these types of clothing. But hey, I didn't come here for some old shirts. I came here for some old games. And some matcha lattes and snacks. But mostly the games. And Dorama has you covered. Now, I mentioned earlier that they have eight stores, and four of them are in Shimokitazawa alone. However, not all of them sell games. I would say actually only one of them does in this area. The others are dedicated to, yes, clothing, and there is one that is a trading card shop. They do sell Pokemon cards, which is game adjacent, but you won't find any console games here. On Google Maps, it did look like the trading card shop used to sell games, but as of 2022, it seems to be only a trading card shop, and they changed the sign to reflect this. The main Dorama game shop is located a bit between two of the main shopping areas. When you go inside, you'll get a major book-off vibe, as there are rows and rows of physical media. On the right are big showcases of hardware. Here you'll find their stock of used switches. They actually had quite an impressive number of copies of Ring Fit Adventure and even Nintendo Labo. I honestly don't think I've seen so many of either in one shop. The Switch game section is not too far away. One thing you'll notice about Dorama is how tall the shelves are. They have stuff stacked to the ceiling. Am I supposed to jump up there? I don't think the staff is going to get excited about busting out the stepladder so I can get that special edition of three houses. The Switch game section here is fine, but I'm here for old stuff. Near the left wall is where they keep most of the retro titles. Depending on who you are, you might have different opinions regarding the cutoff for a retro game. I'm still very much in the anything after 2000 isn't retro mindset, but I know that's absolutely wrong. Even PS1 games kind of don't feel retro to me. I mean, they're on a CD. That's futuristic technology. If you're looking for old Famicom or Game Boy titles, yeah, they do have them, but not a huge stock. Most of the retro games are PS3, 360, Wii, and beyond, with a ton of PSP and DS titles. 
There's a bit of a mix of everything here though. Loose Famicom carts, boxed Super Famicom games, GameCube, GBA titles. The Shimoki Tozawa store had three Saturn games, one being Fighters Megamix, so that's a good pickup anyways. One notable element of Dorama are the fixed price shelves. A retro game could be anywhere from 500 yen to 3000 yen, depending on what it is. But on the fixed price shelves, everything there is a set price. There are 500 yen, 300 yen, and yes, even 100 yen shelves. These are games in box for less than a dollar. Games you've never wanted to play or even heard of get a lot more enticing once they fall into pocket change prices. It's kind of funny to see what games are here. In the 500 yen section, you can buy either FIFA 15 or Eco for PS2. Hmm, tough decision. You'll be surprised to see how many PS4 titles are here, so if you're still building up that collection, you can find some good pickups here. PS4 is closing in on being a retro console, believe it or not. It turns 10 next year. The gap between Super Mario World and Super Smash Bros. for N64 is the same as the PS4 launch to now. Think about that. I mentioned earlier that there are Dorama branded arcades, and by arcades I mean crane games. Honestly, these are pretty small and unimpressive. It's good to experience some arcades that aren't just Taito or Gigo branded, but I was hoping for at least something distinct here. Outside of Shimokitazawa, the other Dorama shop I visited is located in Koenji in Suginami, which is west of Shinjuku. Koenji has a similar vibe to Shimokitazawa. It's not nearly as expansive, but there's a lot of cool stores and eateries. Again, an overall retro feel to the area. There's a number of live music venues here too. Read a book at a cafe, then grab a beer and listen to some tunes. If that's your speed, then Koenji is the place for you. There are two Dorama shops here, but only one that centers around used media. Even though Koenji is much smaller than Shimokitazawa, the Dorama shops are about the same size and have a comparable number of games. The 100 yen section at the Koenji branch is actually quite huge. Mostly DS and PSP games, but some other fun stuff too is there, like IQ for PlayStation. That game was actually a really big hit in Japan. It's also very funny to see a half dozen copies of Destiny and Anthem right next to each other. Their retro section also sells a number of old game accessories. One that stood out were plastic cases you put on your DS. The theme? Love Plus, of course. Another huge seller in Japan that people really don't talk about these days. Konami is just sitting on it like a lot of their other IPs. There's also a big shelf full of bargain bin yokai watch goods. How the mighty have fallen. The Shimokitazawa card shop and the Koenji shop have trading card vending machines. I suppose gotcha is more appropriate since you don't really know what you will get until you put in your money. You put in say 500 yen and you get a random card. It even goes up to 1000 yen, which is pretty pricey for a random item. The Koenji machine also has a selection of loose copies of Game Boy, DS, and PSP games. 300 yen for Game Boy and DS, but only 100 for PSP. Maybe you won't even get a game, but some UMD movie. You won't know until you try. Dorama isn't exactly a paradise when it comes to retro games. You are far more likely to be impressed by a place like Hard Off, but they do have some good prices and you might find something to fill out your collection. But honestly, the real fun of Dorama is the places around it. Shimokitazawa and Koenji are wonderful neighborhoods to leisurely explore. They can get crowded, but it never feels like you are in the middle of Shibuya. These areas are designed around pedestrians and smaller shops that you can quickly pop in and out of. Koenji also has a great shrine, Hikawa Shrine, that is themed around weather and you can buy small Teratera Bozu dolls here. Places like this are why I love Tokyo. Have a nice lunch, 
pick up a donut shaped like a cat, visit a shrine, then peruse some DS games, all within a five-minute walk from each other. Yes, Koenji has donuts that are shaped like cats. And Shimo Kitazawa also has a really good donut shop. Donuts and retro games, name me a better combo. If you are retro hunting in Tokyo and have limited time, I think you can skip Dorama in favor of the bigger places. But if time is no factor, or you live in Tokyo, Dorama and its surrounding areas are fun to chill at for a few hours. Alright, let's get into some games! There's a new sports game on Nintendo Switch. No, not the one from six weeks ago, another one. I'm talking about Mario Strikers Battle League, the newest Mario soccer title from Next Level Games. The Canada-based developer was bought up by Nintendo not so long ago, but they have had a very long history in dealing with Nintendo IPs. They worked on past Mario Strikers games, Punch-Out for Wii, Luigi's Mansion, and more. Luigi's Mansion 3 was a huge hit on the Switch, so it's obvious Nintendo wanted another title out of them sooner than later. Nope, they didn't decide to revive Federation Force. I'm not a Strikers expert. I played some of the Wii version and had a good time. I'm also not that big of a soccer fan either. Though Nintendo is trying to get across that this is a totally new sport called Strike. But the game has the subtitle Battle League Football in Europe. Which is it, Nintendo? Maybe it's a good thing to distance itself from soccer, though. Could you imagine if it had a FIFA Ultimate Team type of mode? Oh, I pulled Blue Toad! I'm going into Strikers with a fairly limited experience with the series, so there's not going to be a lot of comparisons with the past games. I've seen some hardcore say that this game doesn't have the character or personality of the older titles, but honestly, I can't imagine that. This game is filled with personality. Waluigi lays down on the field before a kickoff, while Toad excitedly runs around the ball, Everyone has very distinctive ways of passing and shooting, and of course, the incredible animations that play during Hyper Strikes, which is the character's super move. If you're looking for Mario characters acting silly, this really is the game for you. I mean, Wario has a victory animation where he struts around as Cash rains down on him. How is that lacking personality? Battle League is pretty much what you would expect from a Mario soccer game, but still very different from other Mario sports titles. Like other sports games, it has classic items like bananas and bob bombs that you can just toss out onto the field, and focuses on quick arcadey gameplay. But it's definitely more high impact than the other titles. You aren't dropkicking anyone in Mario Tennis. It's also much more complex. You aren't solely focusing on a single player, but instead four at the same time. You need to think about team composition, what everyone is good at, what everyone is weak at. And during the game, there's a lot more you need to be aware of, Positioning, character matchups, what items you have on hand, your brain is definitely working overtime here. A lot of that comes with the nature of soccer as a game, though. It might turn some people off compared to something like Nintendo Switch Sports, a game you really can just pick up and play. I admittedly wasn't too hot on Battle League during the online test, but after I got a few games under my belt and started to understand strategies and how to win, I began to have a lot of fun with the game. There's definitely some growing pains when you first start off. The button config is more complex than you'd think, and honestly, I wish you could reconfigure them. I don't know why, but my brain wants B to be the shoot button and A to be pass. You also need to use the triggers to switch characters and dodge, which is an incredibly important game mechanic. 
And depending on if you're defense or offense, a button can do different things. Like Y is attack on defense or law pass on offense. But you also need to charge Y on defense for super attack. I know a lot of people just want to jump in and immediately start playing the game, but I highly recommend the tutorial to get a better understanding of the game's concepts. This is certainly not something I would say for most casual titles or even Mario sports games, but the game's complexity requires some patience and studying. It might not appeal to everybody, but I can definitely see some people getting hooked by the game's depth compared to the other Mario sports games. Characters move pretty speedily on the field, and there's always something happening, whether it be characters hitting shots or using items or knocking the other team into the wall. The field is fairly compact, so you're always next to somebody. This sometimes leads to you losing track of the ball, but the benefit of this is that you never feel like your character is completely separated from the team and has to jog down the entire field before they can make an impact. There's still enough room to maneuver and fake out your opponent. When you're on defense, you are trying to clobber the other team, while on offense, you're basically playing keep away with the ball or trying to bait the other team into attacking the wrong player or dodging their attacks. Playing defense is great because you can absolutely annihilate somebody on the other team. You might be tempted to do a charge attack, but depending on the character, a basic attack could spell doom for the opponent. Knocking someone into that electrified wall is always great. Who knew I would get so much satisfaction from seeing Luigi get completely fried? As a defensive player, you have a lot of power, so I can see some people get frustrated if they're up against a very tough team filled with Bowsers who can just wipe out anyone in a second. Being on offense requires a good deal of strategy when it comes to positioning and passing the ball. The dodge mechanic is there to level the playing field, as successfully dodging an incoming attack can give the offensive player a boost, which lets them break away for a cleaner shot. Pulling this off takes practice, but once you master it, don't be surprised if you find yourself dominating your opponent. The goalie, it can be pretty RNG. I've had games where the first goal was scored in three seconds, because somebody won the kickoff and then immediately took a shot on the goal, which went in. Other times you have a completely clean, fully charged shot that is easily caught by Boom Boom. There are times when your strategy to tire out the goalie or trick them pays off, but there's also a lot of gimme goals. I suppose they don't want games to end just one to zero. You want to rack up those points. This leads into one of my main criticisms about the actual soccer portion. They can often feel stretched out due to the animations. You see an animation after you score, which you can skip, but you gotta watch the hyper strikes. You can't skip these, and considering there's always a few every match, it kind of brings everything to a halt as you watch Wario just sit on a ball. I badly wish you could just skip these animations, especially since the game already gives an opponent ample time to defend against it once the animation plays out. Though if you get a perfect hyper strike, it's a free two points. I can see some meta forming based on building characters around hyper strikes. You have to get a power up to use it and then do a fully charged shot. However, the shot has a pendulum meter and the effectiveness of your shot is based on whether or not it lands in the blue area. If it lands in the blue area twice, you get a perfect shot or else the opponent may be able to defend it. The size of the blue area is determined by the character's stats. I can see some benefit in having a character on your team who has a massive blue bar just for them to nail hyperstrikes when convenient. Speaking of stats, this leads into one of the game's newest additions, gear. You can equip different items to characters to affect their stats. So you can make a character really fast, or an all-rounder, or really good at shooting. Characters already have their own inherent base stats, but you can maximize strengths and minimize weaknesses with the gear mechanic. 
I suppose it's similar to Mario Kart's parts in a way, though I feel it plays much more of a major role in that game. Gear here is pretty important though, you can't just ignore it at higher levels of play. You definitely want four characters fully decked out. You earn coins both through single player and multiplayer, but you eventually will hit a wall after you gear up about five or so characters, so choose wisely. I wish the gear had more unique elements, it's purely about raising stats. Having set bonuses or special abilities tied into the gear would be far more interesting. Like maybe if you equip all the turbo items, you would start matches with a mushroom. Things like that would be really cool. The single player and multiplayer modes are fairly limited. This has been a common talking point about all Mario sports games on the Switch. They're solid mechanically, but there's not a whole lot to do as developers want you to just endlessly play online. The sports games have transformed into semi-live service games, with updates coming out after launch. I like free updates, I like new characters, but it often feels like these additions are at the expense of content in the base game. For Battle League, the only noticeable single-player mode are the Cups, which are mini-tournaments. These can be cleared after a few hours and don't have anything particularly special or unique about them. There's nothing here that you won't encounter online, and the only reason to play them is for some easy coins. Battle League is solid mechanically, like I said before, so I would like to see them use these mechanics in more creative ways. The older sports titles always had some weird mode that made you rethink how to play. A few episodes ago, I talked about Mario Golf 64, and some of my favorite modes were the ring shot and the putting mode, because those modes were a very interesting spin on the formula. But since they want to give us new items and characters through online updates, there really is no reason for them to beef up the single player mode to add in unlockables. I feel like you could do so much more with the gameplay here. How about a penalty shootout, or especially event matches like in Smash, or have a challenge board that lets you unlock things? The modes are completely basic. Even the online modes aren't particularly impressive. The biggest thing are the clubs, where you can team up with 19 other players and climb the rankings ladder. This lets you unlock new things for your club, like field customization, but unless you are playing with a club member at all times, you aren't getting the most out of it. Instead of picking your customized team, you have one main character. The idea is that you team up with another person's main character to make a full team. If you play a club match by yourself, you are only using your character and three randomized teammates with zero gear. This puts you at an immediate disadvantage if you are playing online against a club that has two other people. I understand they don't want people to just solo grind, but it can be hard to manage up to 20 people. Weirdly, you can't do four players versus four players online, only two versus two. This leads to a lot of confusing moments regarding who you are actually controlling. Also at launch, the season hasn't even started yet, so there's no reason to even engage with the clubs. By the time this episode goes up, season one may be underway though. I think the actual soccer, sorry, I mean strike, gameplay is very, very solid. It has a good balance between silly fun and actual strategy, and it has more depth compared to a lot of other Mario sports games. If you are just looking for a fun soccer game with a twist, Battle League is it. It's a good game to play if you want to hop in and play a couple of matches every now and then. But if you want more single player options, more modes, and aren't going to just endlessly play matches online, this is a hard game to recommend despite the gameplay actually being pretty fun. I know people want more meat when it comes to features and modes if you're really just going to play it for a few weeks and then move on to a new game. If you are distressed about the lack of content in the Camelot Mario sports games, this one isn't going to please you either. Which is a shame because I was hoping that next level games would have a new take on the Mario sports meta franchise, 
but it falls into the doctrine that a lot of other Switch sports games have, which encourage players to mostly play straight 1v1 matches online and wait for updates to come once a month. I haven't played Super Rush, but out of Aces, Battle League, and Nintendo Switch Sports, I have definitely had the most fun with Nintendo Switch Sports. It is also fairly lacking when it comes to modes, but it inherently has more variety due to the number of sports. The unique motion controls also give it a leg up. And while the unlock system is solely for online gameplay, it works because it has a greater number of things to unlock and it cycles them out pretty frequently. Plus, it's a lower price. Nintendo Switch Sports can get away with a lot due to its unique input methods and its competitive price point, while I think I want Battle League to be a bit more content rich. The next game I want to talk about is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge from France's own .emu. This is the first episode where I've had all Western developed games. But hey, both have very strong connections to Japan. Mario, of course, from Nintendo. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is not from Japan, despite having Ninja in the name. I think a lot of people have completely forgotten about the series' original influences as it has become more child-friendly and its own thing. The original comic was just a parody of popular comics from the 80s. The mutant part comes from the X-Men, and the ninja part comes from Daredevil, which also has ninjas as part of its stories. The Foot Clan is just a riff on the hand from Daredevil. The creators of TMNT actually wanted to give the turtles Japanese names, but they couldn't think of anything. Hey, back then, if you didn't know, you didn't know. There's no internet to save you. TMNT's stronger connection to Japan is the iconic TMNT games from the arcade, NES, and SNES era developed by Konami. They are another Tokyo-based company, and their HQ is in Ginza. I actually haven't seen their HQ in a long while. Maybe I should pop by and see if they're okay. As a kid, I was a fan of the TMNT arcade game, and of course, Turtles in Time. I'm not alone as .emu also drew heavily from those titles for their newest brawler. .emu has worked on reviving several Japanese gaming franchises. And of course, Streets of Rage 4 was the game everyone was looking at when they announced a new Turtles game. There have been a few beat-em-up revivals. Remember Double Dragon Neon? But I felt none really caught on like Streets of Rage 4 did. So there was pretty high expectations for this TMNT game, considering Streets of Rage 4 connected with fans and newcomers of the beat-em-up genre. And after going through a dozen or so stages, I feel like they've done an excellent job in bringing those classic turtle games into the 21st century. They don't exactly reinvent the wheel here, but it's pretty much what you would expect from a TMNT beat-em-up. By the way, these games are called belt action games in Japan, because you keep moving like a conveyor belt. Honestly, I think Japan nails the name most of the time, but beat-em-up is more of a suitable genre name. How about walk and brawl? Shoot-em-ups are shmups, so bups? I'm getting close to something here. You pick a turtle, or a woman, or a rat, and then fight through a variety of ninjas, robots, dinosaurs, and whatever else stands in your way. The input method is very simple, yet there's still some diversity. Most of the time you will be jamming Y to do auto combos, but there are also anti-air attacks, rolls, throws, and a few other options. You also get a variety of super attacks. These straightforward controls make the game very easy to pick up and play for anyone. My wife played with me and she instantly understood what to do. She even racked up more KOs than me on some levels. Again, she has insane beginner's luck. She could probably one-shot the final boss in Elden Ring if you gave her a chance. I can see some people probably wanting more complexity in the combat, or even something like a light and heavy attack. 
but Daimu wants this to be on the more casual end of the beat-em-up scale. Anyone can just go through the story mode with no problem. There are challenges there for people who want to take it a bit more seriously and to 100% the game. Some of these challenges are quite unforgiving, like clearing a stage without taking a hit. I think I'll pass on that one. Stages also have collectibles, but they are very obvious, and you will probably find all of them your first time through a level. The game is also very generous in terms of lives. If you're playing through story mode with others, you might lose a life, but there's no risk of a game over. If you want more of an authentic, hardcore type of beat-em-up, there is a traditional arcade mode and difficulty settings, so go ham. Or go whatever turtle meat is called. You could just be a one turtle army, but the game shines when you're playing with others. It supports six, yes, six players at the same time. Does this get hectic? Yes. Will you lose sight of your character? Probably. Is it awesome? Of course. Clobbering and comboing foot soldiers with your friends or even online randos is the way the game is meant to be played. When everyone starts hitting their specials and the screen fills up with particle effects, it can be unreadable at times, but you want that insanity and vibrancy when playing a TMNT game. More than a few people have told me they plan on having a buddy over and then eating pizza and playing TMNT. This is probably what the devs intended. Just sit down and have a fun time with your friends. The physical edition in the States actually comes with a Pizza Hut coupon. I could have a whole podcast solely about the pizza situation in Japan. A lot of people deride it since there are a lot of unappealing flavors, but there's definitely some good pizza joints in Tokyo. Even the US chain pizza stores are here, like Domino and Pizza Hut, and have different styles than in the West. I recommend Pizzeria Spontini in Harajuku. It's a bit unorthodox, but they give you huge, thick slices. Not that bad of a price either, despite A, being pizza, and B, being located in Harajuku. There's also a small chain of stores called 500 Yen Pizza that sells pizza for, you guessed it, 500 Yen. I would say the taste is at least better than that price. But really, you are at the mercy of whatever pizza place is the closest to you. Pizza prices in Japan can be absurd, like 3,000 yen for a pizza, so you really got to take advantage of deals, discounts, and in-store pickups. There was a pizza place near my old home that had delivery pizza for about 1,000 yen, and it was delicious and had a very cool box, but I don't think they're around anymore. Maybe because they sold an entire pizza for just 1,000 yen. Anyways, Turtles. It's a pretty straightforward beat-em-up and everything you'd expect from a TMNT game in the style of those old Konami titles. Which means, yeah, it's a fun game and worth picking up if that sounds up your alley. But I can't shake the feeling that they could have done more with the game. There are some gimmick levels, but a lot of them are pretty straightforward in terms of obstacles and challenges. In the carnival level, there's a part where you suddenly need to pop balloons, which is a fun little diversion. I like to have seen more of these unique moments in the actual levels. A multiplayer minigame, or maybe special challenges that take place outside of the levels, just something else to do with these game mechanics outside of just playing the same levels over and over again. I don't think they need to reinvent this style of game, but expanding on it would have opened up a lot of new opportunities. I haven't really touched on the presentation as a whole. The graphics and tunes are some of the game's strongest aspects. I really love the sprite work. Unlike in Streets of Rage 4, which looks more animated, .emu wants you to see those chunky pixels. Don't be afraid of pixel chunk. Square is seemingly terrified of it, which is why we got those weird-looking mobile ports years ago. I wonder if people who didn't grow up with these older TMNT games will think this game looks bad or strange, though. 
I guess there are so many retro style games these days that people are much more forgiving or open-minded in terms of different presentations and art styles when compared to the past. I'm also curious about whether or not people who didn't grow up with the 80s Turtles are even interested in this game. I'm not a the 80 Turtles are the only real Turtles type of guy. I'm very Turtle agnostic. But this game really seems aimed at people who are in their 30s. I do think a kid who knows nothing about TMNT would still like it though. It's incredibly colorful, fast-paced, and just an easy breezy game to play with your friends. Kids may not know these turtles, but they're likely to quickly fall in love with them. And if you don't like reptiles, you can play as April, Splinter, and Casey Jones. I haven't used them a whole lot, but April has a lot of Chun-Li inspired moves, which is very clever. I'm mostly sticking with my main man Leo. He was always my favorite turtle, and not because he's blue, although that definitely had a big influence on Kid Me. In short, I'm totally digging this game. It has everything you'd want from a new TMNT beat-em-up, although it doesn't push the envelope as hard as it could have. Daimu says they aren't working on any DLC and want to see how well it sells, but I imagine this will definitely move more than a few copies. The developer has done Streets of Rage and now TMNT. The only thing left, of course, is The Simpsons. I probably played more of the Simpsons arcade game than the TMNT one. I've also seen people wanting .emu to tackle another Konami arcade game, X-Men. That would also be very exciting, but honestly, if I had to choose between The Simpsons or X-Men, I would go with The Simpsons. There's no Chief Wiggum in the X-Men universe. Also, isn't it weird that the same company owns both The Simpsons and X-Men? Well, let's start winding this thing down. Japanese gaming phrase of the week. This week's phrase is Saidobu. Saidobu. Like last week's phrase, this is once again from English. It comes from side view. It refers to RPGs where the parties stand side by side. Good guys on one end, bad guys on the other. This is in contrast to the front view where you are looking at the enemy from a first person perspective, like in Dragon Quest. So Final Fantasy is side view and Dragon Quest is front view. Which do you prefer? Again, Saidobu. Now for the Japanese tweet of the week. I picked one from at Moku Moku Ren. This user found a giant Pikachu mural created by cookie boxes at the supermarket. I've seen this brand of cookies many times, but never once did I think to make a giant wall of them with Pikachu's visage. Thankfully, someone did. The link is in the description as always. And we're done. Thanks as always for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite app. This podcast is also available on YouTube, so like and subscribe there as well. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Just search for Tokyo Game Life or find links in the podcast description. If you like the podcast, be sure to share it with your friends and on social media. If there's anything you want me to talk about or cover, don't be shy. Just message me on Twitter. The next episode will be Sunday, July 3rd. See you next time. Matane! Matane!